I might be on quite a wild streak, having quoted Dr. Seuss to you last week. This morning I'm going to start with, start with Shel Silverstein's poem entitled Sick. I cannot go to school today, said little piggy Ann McKay. I have the measles and the mumps, a gash and rash and purple bumps. My mouth is wet, my throat is dry. I'm going blind in my right eye. My tonsils are as big as rocks. I've counted 16 chicken pox. And there's one more that's 17. And don't you think my face looks green? My leg is cut, my eyes are blue. It might be instamatic flu. I cough and sneeze and gasp and choke. I'm sure my left leg is broke. My hip hurts when I move my chin. My belly button's caving in. My back is wrenched, my ankle's sprained. My appendix pains each time it rains. My nose is cold, my toes are numb. I have a sliver in my thumb. My neck is stiff, my spine is weak. I hardly whisper when I speak. My tongue is filling up my mouth. I think my hair is falling out. My elbow's bent, my spine ain't straight. My temperature is 108. My brain is shrunk, I cannot hear. There's a hole inside my ear. I have a hangnail and my heart is... What? What's that you say? You say today is Saturday? Ha! I'm going outside to play. Some of you may know Shea Silverstein, as my wife actually knows that one by heart. Some of you, that might be your first time hearing it. But if you noticed, you should pick up that Peggy Ann McKay doesn't want to go to school. So she claims to have all kinds of diseases. She claims to have all kinds of sicknesses, citing gnashes and rashes and bumps and coughing and sneezing. For in her mind, all of these symptoms point to something. All of these symptoms point to a conclusion. They point to a, a diagnosis that she is sick and therefore, based on the symptoms, concluding into a diagnosis, she can't go to school. Peggy Ann McKay has figured out that symptoms are clues. They're revealers. They're indicators. They tell a story, and when you put them all together, they reveal a bigger picture. Which is exactly why, when you go to the doctor, one of the first questions they ask is, well, tell us your symptoms. Because as you begin to explain what's going on with your body, what's going on inside you, they're able to put together and piece together what's happening based on the evidence. Because of X, Y, and Z, we can conclude this or that. This idea of symptoms leading to a diagnosis or a conclusion is exactly what James is going to assert to us this morning. It's exactly what James wants to tell us as we enter into James chapter 2. And we consider the reality of the relationship between good works... And faith, good works, right practice, seeking righteousness, spiritual maturity, growing, obedience. What's the relationship between those things and faith? That's what James has for us this morning, that we would start to see and understand that this good works that he professes to us here, are actually evidence, they're indicators of faith. For we should not miss, friends, we should not miss this, that Jesus said to His disciples and to us, I have come to give you life and life to the full. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. 
Which is to say, those are statements that are true about you in salvation, that there should be evidence of that new life. There should be parts of your life that testify to that new creation reality. For friends, if that is not your experience following Christ, if that is not your experience, you prayed a prayer and you haven't changed, this text doesn't have condemnation for you. This text has the opportunity for you to fully submit your life to Christ. That's what James is pushing for here, that you would understand rightly the relationship between works and faith. And if you don't see that in your life, that you would submit your life to Christ, that He might be at work in you, that He might transform you so that we would be reminded together that is Jesus, according to 2 Corinthians 3, that transforms us from one degree of glory to another. So this morning we're walking into James 2. It's a challenging text in some ways, but James makes it really, really clear. So let's pray about our time in God's Word as we jump in. Oh, gracious Father, we are so thankful for Your Word. Thank You that You have given us Your Word that we might understand You, we might understand Your thoughts, Your purposes, we might understand Your will. Thank You that in Jesus Christ You have gave us a a rich and a thick salvation. That in Him, not only are we transformed from darkness into light, not only are we given a new creation life, But Father, You've promised to continue to grow us, mature us. That He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Father, would You grant us the insight, the discernment we need, the clarity we need in this text this morning, that we might heed it, we might follow You more closely. And Father, we might believe in Your Son all the more. Father, would You move all of us to full maturity in Christ? It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, we are in our series in the book of James. I've entitled this series, Portraits of Maturity, asserting to you every week that what James is trying to put before you, what he's showing you is pictures of maturity. So that you would see what growing up, what spiritual maturity looks like. So that we might understand that spiritual maturity is not just biblical orthodoxy. That is, believing the right things about Jesus. Now don't get me wrong, that's exceedingly important. But it isn't the goal. It's the means to the goal. That's why James is in our Bibles. So that we would understand that the goal of the Christian life is a transformed life. That we would rightly know Jesus and that lead us to rightly living out our faith. Some call that orthopraxy, right? Living. And so what James is doing for us is he's giving us these pictures. You love Jesus. You've submitted your life to Jesus. You want to be mature in Jesus. This is what that should look like. Now, beloved, you're going to read through James and you're going to go, that's not me. I'm not there yet. That's okay. He's putting that before you that you might continue mature. You might be called up. That's what we're going to continue to see even this morning, what maturity looks like. So as we've walked through James, we've seen James call us 
to live a life that's fully submitted to Christ. And in doing so, even in our sufferings, we would find joy because Christ is in the midst of it. That's maturity. And we've seen that maturity is not just reading your Bible, but obeying it, doing what it said. That's maturity. And even last week, we saw James really articulate for himself that we should so embrace the gospel that we would hold no partiality. That as according to what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, that because of our salvation, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. Which means it is within our flesh, in our earthly living, that we would judge one another based on the color of our skin or the content of our wallets or any other number of issues. But in Jesus Christ, there's no room for any of that. There's no room for racism or classism or practicing any kind of hierarchy of people. Because the only merit we have is in Christ. That is spiritual maturity. That Christ in us would remove those things from us. And so as we've worked through this book, one of the questions you might naturally come to, and come to rightly, is what is the nature of maturity? What does it mean? Why is it necessary? That's what James is going to lean into us on this morning because is it the means by which I'm saved? Is spiritual maturity or good works things that I do for God or the things that I do to be approved by God or are they something entirely different? What I want to assert to you this morning is that James has been overt in pointing us to the gospel time and time again. So that the nature of maturity would come out towards us so that we would understand that Christ has redeemed us and is transforming us. And I think that's what he's going to argue here. So let's jump into the text. James 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Again, James uses the phrase, my brothers, clarifying that he's writing to believers. I've pointed this out every week. I'm going to point it out every week. It shows up in almost every passage. Because what it does for us is it clarifies, again, that James is writing to believers. He's not saying try harder. He's not saying work out your salvation. He's not saying be good enough. James is writing so that we would understand it's built on this reality that you've trusted Christ for salvation. And from that position, he's calling you to maturity. So look at his question. What good is it, my brothers? He's asking you as his brothers and sisters in the faith. He's giving you an illustration, a hypothetical. What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? The first thing we need to see is that James isn't dividing true faith from false faith. James is dividing faith from a false claim of faith. So the illustration that James is putting before us is this. There's a man who doesn't have faith, who says he has faith. The text itself says he has a, says he has faith. It's a false claim a false reality. Yet there's no evidence of his faith. 
So James asks the question, can this faith, which seems to be in words alone, save him? Or is it possible to claim to follow Jesus and never grow? Is it possible to claim to follow Jesus and never show any sign of maturity? Is it possible to claim to know Jesus and never be changed? That's the question we've got to tackle this morning. And at least at first glance, we have to at least acknowledge that the litmus test for most theology in the New Testament is the thief on the cross, correct? Testifies to Jesus, still dies next to Jesus, promised eternity. So yes, And yet what James is trying to put out for us, he's not going to give us these one-moment interactions, right? He's not going to show you here in a minute. He's going to give you an illustration about how do you react to somebody in need. James is not trying to tell you if you do this once, man, it's coming for you. James is trying to lay out patterns for us. James is saying if you claim to follow Jesus and yet there's no evidence at all in your life that you're following Jesus, is that real faith? So James leans into that. He illustrates that for us. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now keep in mind, James is looking for evidence. He's illustrating it here. If a brother or sister is lacking, They lack clothes, they lack food. And your response to them is not action, but well-wishing. Your response is to wish them well. Go in peace, be warmed and be filled. Act as if you've got these things that you don't have. What James is trying to make clear in this is that there's not an actual activity. There's a claim of something without something. There's a, a claim of faith without being having faith. There's a claim of having you having food and warmth without you having food and warmth. He's trying to show you the futility of words that are just for show. Showing you the futility that these people are still cold and hungry. They're still lacking and you've accomplished nothing as if to suggest that this faith that only offers words is similarly futile. That they bear a witness to our inability or unwillingness to love our neighbor as ourselves, as he wrote earlier. And that will bring James to this conclusion, verse 17. So often faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is testifying You claim to have faith. There's no evidence of your faith in your life. It's because you don't have faith. He's making this really clear. Beloved, we have to keep in mind here that the claim of faith is not that you do more things to earn merit. The claim of faith is that you were dead in your transgressions and Christ made you alive. That's the claim of faith. 
And the distinction there is, if you were dead and now you're alive, alive people have a pulse. Alive people give evidence of life. Dallas Seminary professor J. Ronald Blue put it this way, Great claims may be made about a corpse that is supposed to have come into life. But if it doesn't move, if there are no vital signs, if there is no heartbeat, no perceptible pulse, it is still dead. The false claims are silenced by the evidence. What Dr. Blue is telling you is if there's no evidence, you've got no life. That's what James is asserting here in the text. Dead is dead, alive is alive. There's evidence that proves life. But James isn't done. He takes on another objection, verse 18. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James makes his argument. Works are the evidence of faith. They're the outflowing of belief. So just to believe is insufficient. It's going to be outflowing says you believe. How's he going to justify that? 19 and 20. You believe that God is one, and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Friends, it's fitting that James points to demons. For demons believe in God. Demons know that God is real. Demons know that God is true. Demons believe in a very real, in a very concrete way. And yet their belief doesn't give them life. James appeals in this passage, you believe that God is one. He points to the Shema, the classic statement from Deuteronomy 6. It's the confession of belief from the Old Testament. You can profess that God is one and not believe. He's testifying to this idea of words that are empty. He's giving us a picture of a false claim of belief. So what does real belief look like? James appeals to Abraham, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Note the word justified here. Let's talk about that. So this word right here actually is one of the reasons why Martin Luther rejected this passage and the whole book. Luther didn't like what James was saying. And I'm by no means going to argue that I understand more than Luther. I am going to argue I've got a whole lot more scholarship in the you know 500 years since he's been gone to read. What, what Luther misses in this under his understanding of this passage is that justification is not about being made righteous. Justification is about being declared righteous. Justification is about being declared righteous, not made righteous. You can't earn your way into righteousness, but but belief declares your righteousness. Listen to the explanation, verse 22. 
you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. The scripture was fulfilled that said, God, that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he called God, and he called, a, and he was called a friend of God. What James is articulating in this passage is that Abraham believed in God. And how do we know Abraham believed? Because he obeyed. His obedience and his willingness to offer his son is a testimony of the evidence of his belief. So it's not the works that justified him. It's the works that clarify that his faith was substantive. There was something there, something to stand on. Now James points to Rahab. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Again, we have to be careful with the word justification here because it means something. Rahab believed. And the evidence of her belief was receiving the messengers. For if we were to go back into either of those stories, Abraham believed and then didn't want to sacrifice his son, we'd go, Abraham didn't believe. We go into the Rahab story and say, Rahab believed, but is unwilling to accept the messengers. Rahab doesn't believe. James is trying to make clear for us this reality that works are evidence of faith. They substantiate it. That if you believe in Jesus, you're going to look different. You're going to act different. It's going to come off on you. Verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Love the argument that James is making is this. Real faith has evidence. It produces fruit. It's never alone. You may have heard this statement before. I don't remember where it originated. Faith alone saves. But a faith that saves is never alone. It helps us to understand that faith has implications. That the claim of faith that does not change is not substantive. I appreciated what Dane Ortland wrote in his book, Gentle and Lowly, describing good works. Saying that good works are things we don't do for God. They're things we do from God. It helps us to get to this understanding that our works, our maturity, our growth is not for our merit as if we can achieve something in the kingdom of God. It actually is because He he loves us. He's loved us so much that He gave us His Son. He's given us this indwelling, rich, thick, real love that we would be so full we could love others out of it. Our good works come from God through us. Beloved, what James is trying to put before us is a view of maturity. What James is doing for us here is helping us to see the end of if maturity is reading your Bible and obeying your Bible, what we got in chapter 1, faith is doing that. 
It's living in obedience. It's living out the transformation He has for us. Now, one of the great challenges to preaching is how many passages can I throw in this before it gets convoluted? Because I wanted to point to 2 Peter 1. I want to point to about four other passages to really clarify some other points, but I'm going to land us in Ephesians 2. Because it's going to be Paul making the exact same argument, but he's going to do it rather than practically, which is how James writes it, Paul's going to do it theologically. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. We can unpack that. By grace you've been saved through faith. When you believe in Jesus Christ, when you trust in Jesus Christ, by His grace you receive salvation. You don't earn it. Paul leans in further. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But this is the exact same thing that James is writing. He's just writing it theologically, not practically. How do we know? Verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In 8 and 9, you see this clear explanation of the gospel. For by grace you've been saved. By the time you get to 10, you are saved. You are created in Christ Jesus for good works, for maturity, for growth, for transformation. That God has a plan for your life to keep maturing you, to keep growing you up, to keep moving you along. And so when we see in chapter 1 that he's going to use trials and temptations to mature you, we see at the end of chapter 1 he's going to use you reading and studying your Bible to mature you. Because that's his great plan. To grow us up. Next week we'll stop into chapter 3. Chapter 3 is about the tongue. I, I laughed this week. I, I was sitting having a conversation with somebody. And they brought up a, a story. And I was real quick to want to jump in. And I realized, I'm about to gossip. And I stopped myself. And I don't, I don't need to share that. That, that, that. That's not something I need to, to share. And the funny part of that moment is I was almost edified, like, <laughs> like the Holy Spirit works. <laughs> like, wow, well, I, I, I was well on my way to sin and like the brakes got pumped and I didn't see it coming. I, I look back on my life, my faith. I, I've kept journals my whole life and I remember a whole season of my life where I, I really struggled with, with swearing, coarse joking. And I look back on my life now and I go, you know what's weird? I don't struggle with that anymore. God has matured me. He's grown me up. And beloved, what we're supposed to see in James, what we're supposed to see in Ephesians, is Jesus is in the process of maturing you and growing you up. 
so that there's evidence in your faith. So if somebody should look at your life and walk through your calendar and walk through your checkbook, they go, well, clearly this person's a believer. I mean, look at the evidence. It's obvious. They love Jesus. They matured because Jesus changed them over and over and over and over again. So be built up, be edified, because what James is trying to put before us is that this is a picture of maturity. If you stop here on February 6th and decide I'm not mature right now, there's not much evidence. That's okay. Build a case. You got time. Like this is not a condemning passage. It's the opportunity to rightly submit ourselves to Jesus Christ to say, I want to mature. I want to be called up. I want to endure trials. I want to read and obey my Bible. I want to live in community. We're going to see all these as pictures as James continues to put together this book for us that we would all be called up in a way that honors and glorifies Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from us, but it flows from Him. All of it. For He's the one that transforms us from one degree of glory to another. He is the one that prepared beforehand all of the good works that we should walk in them. Paul gives us this picture of maturity that we would understand that true substantive faith has evidence and that we would build evidence in our lives. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this, how you encourage us, you exhort us, you challenge us. Father, I pray that you would be at work in each of our lives, calling us to maturity, calling us to greater obedience. Father, for we all have those moments when we're stuck with, will we obey you, will we honor you, or will we choose the flesh? So, Father, I pray that you would be at work in us, calling us into your word, calling us to obedience, calling us to be mindful of all that you accomplished for us at the cross that your blood has not just purchased our salvation, but it's purchased our obedience and our sanctification. Jesus, would you just continue to transform our lives, making us more and more like your son. In your name we pray. Amen.